Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 87. VH. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm turning my attention away from comics and toward music. Specifically, I'll be looking at a band whose sound helped define the decade of the 1980s, and who is easily one of the greatest rock bands, not just in that decade, but probably of all time. And yes, I'm sure that my proclamation in that last sentence is probably up for debate, especially considering my, well, sometimes questionable taste in music. But I think that when you look at top 40 singles, album sales, and overall longevity, I have a really good case. Besides, how could you argue with the steady bass of Michael Anthony, the manic drums of Alex Van Halen, the scorching guitar of Eddie Van Halen, and the soaring vocals of Sammy Hagar? Yeah, I kind of misled you on the way in there, didn't I? This isn't a Van Halen episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. This is the Van Hagar episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that back in 1986 and 1987, I had about a year-long run of buying and collecting comics before I more or less stopped and wouldn't start up again until about 1990, something that I detailed in my podcast miniseries Origin Story. Well, if you listened to that podcast miniseries, you probably also heard me talk about music, which I also dabbled in during that time before backing off for a few years and then really getting seriously into music in my freshman year of high school. And that was about 91 or 92. My main fandom for the first couple of years of high school were bands like Guns N' Roses, and I also started what has become a permanent love of the band Queen. But among those bands that I started listening to in earnest during those first few years of high school was Van Halen. For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge was among the first CDs that I ever got. And my knowledge of Van Halen at the time, though, went a little further back than that. In fact... My knowledge of Van Halen goes back to two particular years. The first is 1984, and the second is 1988. In 1984, the band had one of the biggest songs of the David Lee Roth era, and arguably one of the biggest songs of its career, Jump, from the album 1984. That got a lot of play on the radio, as it was one of the few songs that even at seven years old, I recognized whenever it came on. However, I had no idea who Van Halen were as a band, or to be honest, anything about rock or pop music beyond the theme to, like, Ghostbusters. And, well, whatever was on Light FM and was softacular at that point. But, if we fast forward to late August and early September of 88, and that's a time when I'm staying at my Aunt Marion's, and uh, I'm staying with my cousin Brian, who's the same age as me. We both had Nintendo Entertainment Systems. We spent what amounted to probably the better part of a weekend playing the game Contra and trying to beat it without the Konami code because we didn't know that such a thing existed at that point. Anyway, I remember going to the video store with them to rent some movies, as you did, and I remember seeing advertisements for the new Van Halen album in the window of a nearby record store. Uh, That would have, of course, been the album OU812, which is the first Van Halen album I would actually own in a way Uh, more on that in a moment i also have this memory of brian's sister my cousin kelly going to see van halen that summer and in a very old entry on the blog i offhandedly mentioned a t-shirt that she owned that said van halen kicks ass 87 but while uh, a van halen 
kicks-ass t-shirt does exist. The band never did tour in 1987, and they wouldn't hit the Nassau Coliseum until October 12th of 1988, and that was a Wednesday. I wouldn't have been off. Uh, they did play at the Coliseum in August of 86 on the 5150 tour, and I think it's very possible that that's when she saw them. And maybe what I had done in my head over time was merge those two summer visits to their house into one, especially if she did go see them in 86, you know, because I would have been nine years old. And honestly, I do remember the T-shirt, but was probably so fixated that a bad word, ass, was on a T-shirt that my cousin owned that I sort of filled in the rest of the story as the years went by. By the time I started listening to music and Van Halen in earnest in the early 1990s, I was used to the idea that Sammy Hagar was the lead singer of Van Halen, and it was not a big deal. I knew of the existence of David Lee Roth. I knew of the existence of David Lee Roth as the lead singer of Van Halen, and I had heard some of his solo stuff because a few of my friends had the album Skyscraper and that's the one with uh, Just Like Paradise. I remembered some of the things I had learned about his tenure with the band as well, but Sammy Hagar had pretty much been one of those rock singers who was always around in my mind. So him and Van Halen, it just, again, it was never odd to me. In fact, I knew some of Sammy's solo stuff I say all this to put aside any trepidation you had about my kind of pulling a little bit of a bait and switch with Van Halen and Van Hagar. I'm actually here to praise the band. I'm not here to be a snarky, snotty asshole about them. I have nothing against Original Recipe Van Halen, by the way. I enjoy it. I have a copy of 1984 on CD. It's a phenomenal album. But, you know, sometimes I think Van Hagar does not really get the respect that they deserve. And I'm sure that maybe 20 or 25 years ago, I might have had a stronger opinion about this. But now I'm in the school of, you can like them both if you want to, so it's okay. So I'm not going to say one is better than the other. Plus, I think it, when you listen to the Van Hagar albums, all four of them, you honestly have some of the most consistent, straight-up rock of the late 80s and early 1990s. I mean... They're not Nirvana, and yeah, they're kind of embodying what Matt Dillon's Cliff termed beer and lifestyle music in singles, but let's be honest, that's what's advertised on the label. I mean, just listen to the opening riff of Summer Nights. Is this not the theme song to basically every wet t-shirt contest that's been held for the last 30 years? Should I look down my nose because Sammy Hagar is not singing about fighting against the oncoming political strife and recession of the late Reagan era or how he's wrestling with his own inner demons? I mean, look, I love introspective and angsty music as much as anyone. I have a crap ton of it in my collection. But that's not why I throw on some Van Hagar every once in a while. And now that we've gotten any pretense out of the way, as well as my Van Hagar origin story out of the way, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about five classic Van Hagar songs. Stick around. I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. You may call him Alias. You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him 
Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The song that I just came in with, if you're unfamiliar with it, is actually the last Van Hagar song, Humans Being. This is from the soundtrack to the 1996 movie Twister. It didn't make the list that I put together for this episode, but I wanted to at least acknowledge it because of its place in the band's history. It did hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1996, but at the time of the recording, there were a lot of tensions between Sammy Hagar and the Van Halen brothers, and that would all come to a head following the song's recording and release, especially when the band decided to release a Greatest Hits album in 1996-97. There's a lot of hearsay and conjecture considering the exact circumstances around Hagar leaving the band, but one of them is that he didn't want to do a Greatest Hits album, and since tensions were already high, he either quit or he was fired, and it depends on who you talk to. David Lee Roth was brought back to do some songs, only one of which was actually completed and released. It was called Me, My Machine, and the band did part ways with Roth in 90, this was about 96, with the Van Halen saying the reunion was temporary, Roth disagreeing with that. Whether or not Dave's behavior at the 1996 Video Music Awards had anything to do with it is also a question that often gets asked when you talk about Van Halen in the mid-1990s. Especially because from there, in the late 1990s, Van Halen would actually have a third lead singer, former extreme frontman Gary Sharon. That lasted all of one album, Van Halen 3. Then they go on a reunion tour with Hagar, followed by a reunion with Roth, and he's considered currently the frontman for the band. But going all the way back to the 80s, Van Hagar was around for 11 years, from 1985 until 1996, which is pretty much the same amount of time that uh, Roth was in the band his first time around. And in that time, they released four studio albums. So what I'm going to do is go chronologically through this list. And I, like I said, I picked five songs, one from each of these four studio albums, and then two from one of them. And they are some of the band's biggest hits, and I'm going to do that specifically because I'm sure while there's other songs in the albums that better fans might put on their personal top five, uh, these are the ones that I remember the most, and I think they're representative in a way that deeper album cuts might not always be, at least from the kind of perspective that I'm coming from. Anyway, let's get to the songs, starting with my first one, which is off of 1986's 5150. Thank you. 
I think that if there is a top five list of Van Halen videos, or at least a list of five Van Halen videos that I remember without having to look them up to see what they what happened in them, Dreams is on that list. Um, incidentally, one of the others is actually deeper down on this list, and you could probably guess what it is. The other three are David Lee Roth videos. Uh, the one for oh, their cover of Oh Pretty Woman, um, and then two from the 1984 album, Jump, of course, and Hot for Teacher. And I'm sure that a few of you who are listening to this who are around in 1986 and watching MTV know why I remember the video to Dreams so vividly, and that's because it's basically a bunch of Blue Angels footage. And I was nine, and Top Gun had come out, and do the math, you know? Like, I, I, okay, so I can't remember exactly why the band basically chose a montage of the Blue Angels doing aerial stunts for a music video, especially when this is the only, the second season single of the band's new lineup. Uh, Why Can't This Be Love was the first one. And their videos had been such a huge thing, especially on the previous album. I want to say that I read somewhere once that Sammy Hagar had been in a car or a motorcycle accident around the time the album was being recorded, so he couldn't appear in a video. And um, maybe there is truth to that. He's in a wheelchair on at least a couple of the publicity images from the album. As for the song, I honestly think it's one of the most pure examples of the difference between original Recipe Van Halen and Van Hagar. While there are certainly songs in the Van Hagar catalog that could have possibly been sung by David Lee Roth, and I think Summer Nights is one of those songs, this one is pure Hagar. Something Sammy brings to the band when you listen to the music is this earnest sincerity. And I don't mean that in the pejorative. In fact, the type of sincerity that he brings is hard to pull off without coming off as completely cheesy. There are Sammy Hagar songs that are cheesy, or they come pretty close to cheesy. And there are Van Hagar songs that toe the line. But Dreams, which doesn't hide the fact that it's supposed to be this soaring anthem, works on all levels, even with the synthesizer, which I think this album does have an overabundance of at points. And while this is the fourth song on the album and the second single, it actually could serve as a good opening track, or at least a way to introduce the band's new sound. Now, there are a number of other great songs on 5150. I did play part of Why Can't This Be Love toward the top of the show. I played a clip of from Summer Nights, and I would say that Love Walks In is another one that was released as a single, but if I'm being honest, uh, it's so synth-heavy heavy that I just don't really like it, especially compared to the live version that primarily used piano instead on the band's 1993 Right Here, Right Now live double album. And while this is probably conjecture on my part, I have to say that I don't think anyone expected a Van Halen album to have love songs in the vein of Love Walks In, or this next one, which is off of the band's second release in 1988, OU812. And that's called When It's Love.
So yeah, speaking of earnest love songs, this is like a prom song, right? I mean, you hear this and you can picture the ruffled lace dresses and the teased to high heaven hair, mall hair on the floor of the local catering hall, right? I mean, between the synthesizers, the lyrics, the harmonies, the videos, if there's one song that says, let's dance to this late 80s power ballad and then go have kind of make out in the limo we paid a few hundred dollars for, it's this. And I know I'm sounding silly there, but, you know, it is what it is, and it's definitely of its era. But let's, let's shift to the video for a moment. Now, the video... The video, I think, is while it's not really the band's most memorable, it's just, it's also really, really so much of its time. The band's performing in a bar past closing. It's shot in various filters as well as in color. Um, you can barely see Alex throughout much of it. He's behind his massive drum kit. Eddie's there, and he keeps smiling because that's what Eddie Van Halen does in videos. He's, like, half committing to the part. Mike... Looks like he spent the day working as Peter DeLuise's stunt double over on the 21 Jump Street. And Sammy is wearing the same suit and t-shirt combo that Huey Lewis wears in the I Want a New Drug video. Except that I don't think Huey Lewis's pants had as many pleats in them as Sammy's does. And Sammy has way better hair than Huey Lewis. Or half the girls dancing to this song at their prom back in 1988. There's also some story about a waitress talking to a bartender. They go back and forth. They go flirt with him. I, I guess that's the whole thing of, like, how do I know that this is love? Honestly, they probably didn't even need that because all you notice throughout this entire video is Sammy Hagar going full Sammy Hagar. I mean, he's jumping around. He's he's having fun. He's, he's singing, like, right at Eddie, and he's smiling, and it's... When you watch footage of the band and you watch him and other stuff, it's like, no, that's Sammy being Sammy. So you kind of have to admire that. All right. Silliness and snark about the song and or the video aside, because honestly, the video is just a run-of-the-mill late 80s rock video. This is one of those Van Hagar songs that shouldn't work. I mean, it honestly shouldn't work with a band like Van Halen. I mean, but because but, they're not supposed to be singing sappy songs about love. I mean, if that's your impression of what Van Halen should be. But when it's love starts off with this really great keyboard part and what they pull off here is that when the guitar kicks in that doesn't end up sounding out of place in fact this is a song that's layered enough to have a full sound that in the hands of someone like a peter satara or a post satara chicago would have been anemic OU812 was the first van hagar album i actually had because i borrowed my friend's copy and dubbed it using my parents stereo if I'm ranking the four Van Hagar studio albums, I put it third, with 5152nd on the list. Topping that list would be the 1991 album for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, or yes, Fuck, which was a return to a more guitar-driven rock sound, and which happened to be the album that was out when I got my very first CD player. I'm sure that that particular bit of nostalgia where I would listen to this for the first time and I was 14 or 15 probably has something to do with why I hold this album in such high regard. But I think it's also because of the fact that it's just really good and the guitar-driven rock sound that they went for, which was definitely heavier than OU812, was something they really needed, especially in the early 90s. And... It has a really killer opening track, Pound Cake.
So I actually had to go back and look at the video for this because I could, really couldn't remember it. And I, I looked at the Wikipedia description. I was like, what? Auditions and girls in bikinis and one girl who's not as slutty, sluttily dressed. And anyway, so the video, so I, so I watched the video. The video is actually a really good example of like late 80s hangover stuff that kind of like was the early 90s i mean it features a lot of tropes of 80s hair metal videos like women taking their clothes off and the band performing on stage but if you look at the camera work the color palette and the fashions on a lot of the women it's the early 1990s so it's and it's really not much of a video except that you get to see that really cool eddie using a drill to start the song and boobs but the song other than the video is well i'd say it's the definition of a balls out rock song i mean a lot of this album is to be honest like that but that's what i've always associated with this band i mean i've covered a soaring anthem already i've covered a love song but i wanted to make sure that i also covered something that flat out rocked and i don't have much else to say about pound cake because honestly there's not a lot to say about the song it's just really really fun to hear a van halen song that is that is guitar heavy and rocks and, and has Sammy's sort of straightforward vocals that really really lend itself to it and I need to cover the next song as it is because it's also off of this album this is a Van Hagar song that's easily one of my favorites it's easily one of their best known and right now I'm wondering if you haven't already figured out what it is
I actually don't know if I want to talk too much about the video for right now, because as I was re-watching it, and honestly, re-watching it for the first time in a decade, I think, at least, to be honest, I thought that, I was, that going through the video and others like it would make a great blog post. But I don't think you can really separate right now the song from the video, because the video is such a great complement to the song. If you are unfamiliar with it, it's basically four and a half minutes of messages starting with the phrase right now and all dealing with issues that were important to the time. Just was with the video for Pound Cake, it's a very 1990s thing, and it's actually the most grunge-like of Van Halen's early 90s videos. You've got messages, you've got a lot of early 90s typefaces, you've got, a grain, you've got grainy footage at times. 26 years after it came out, and I can see why it wound up winning Video of the Year. But I have listened to Right Now more than I've watched Right Now since it came out. So I think that says something about the song. And it says something about my love of piano parts and rock songs, too. There's a moment in this song after the intro where Eddie goes from tinkling around on the piano to a very rock-forward series of chords. And to me, that's one of the best parts of it. Much like When It's Love, the band shows that they have an ear for producing tight, full rock pop songs that in the hands of lesser artists would have either been really thin or would have been really messy. At no time does this ever get away from the band or veer off into being way too preachy or sappy in its tune or lyrics or have anyone spend too much time showing off their musical stylings. And yet, the song is really simple when you think about it. There's not much subtlety to it, but let's face it, this is Van Hagar, one of the least subtle bands of this era. And that's what makes it a great song. Such sincerity was definitely an early 1990s trademark, and not just for Van Hagar. Look at a number of acts from around this time, and while you do see humor from time to time, you also see a rejection of the general silliness and winking at the camera that categorized a lot of the glammier rock of the late 1980s. And look, I loved Alternative in the early 90s. I still love the early 90s and alternative music from the early 90s. But man, there were a lot of bands that took themselves way too seriously. Van Hagar didn't always, or at least it didn't look like they did. Now, unfortunately, what they had with For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge didn't follow through to the next album or the next studio album anyway, they did release a live album called Live Right Here Right Now, which has like one of the most 90s covers for a Van Halen album ever. Um, it, it shows two houses, one that had been destroyed by some sort of natural disaster, but the other one that was fine, and the statue of Jesus was standing outside of it, and Van Halen Right Here Right Now, Live, whatever the title of the album was written in that typewriter font. I mean, it's it's very early 90s. But the next studio album was 1995's Balance, uh, and this is the final Van Hagar album. And if I'm being honest, it's my least favorite of the four. I'll qualify that by saying it's not a terrible album, but I listened to some songs off of Balance the other night, and man, that record's kind of a mess, and it has not aged well. I mean, granted, that's the case for a lot of music from the mid to late 1990s, but what happens with Balance is that the band doesn't exactly know what it wants to do with itself. I guess the idea was to try to strike, well, the balance between the hard rock and the soft of the band's music, but this one, unlike like OU812 or 5150, where they do strike that balance, this one falls flat. And if I want to give you any one song of the album that shows this, it has to be their hit, can't stop loving you. 
two songs in this album this one and not enough uh they're they're straightforward sincere love songs that back in their prime van hagar would have just dominated and lesser bands would have not known what to do with but here it sounds like something's missing like they've let one of those lesser bands take over it's not as tight everything seems way more tinny than i'm used to from them there's not a fullness to the to the instrumentation the lyrics and the melody aren't exactly different from something like Love Walks In or Why Can't This Be Love or When It's Love, but, you know, it's like this feels more empty than the other ones or like they're going through the motions with it. And, and, and maybe I'm being too harsh. I don't know. After all, this album came out in 1995, and 1995 was kind of an odd year for music when you really think about it. In fact, Balance was the first number one album of 95, and this was a year that saw the rise of the Goo Goo Dolls, Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Review, 
the continued ascension of, of the Dave Matthews Band. REM had put out Monster the previous year and was in the middle of that kind of nightmare tour that saw like Bill Berry have an aneurysm and Michael Stipe get hospitalized for like a hernia or something. The theme from Friends hit it big. Oasis is what the story Morning Glory came out. Uh, the Smashing Pumpkins released Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness later in the year. And so, so what you have is this beginning of this post-grunge era uh, before that late 90s new metal shit and uh, the beginning of this took over and, and rock, mainstream rock started becoming like really adrift for a few years and eventually brought us Nickelback and Can't Stop Loving You is a lot like kind of like what Bon Jovi would do in, in the 2000s where they were putting out like the soccer mom rock stuff. Like, almost like, I think they even put out like a country album at one point, but it was just sort of like, it's thin. I, I don't know. It's like, I, I mentioned Not Enough, which is piano driven and would have actually sounded better being handled by like Steve Perry or Steve Perry era Journey. Because... As much as I like Sammy Hagar, he just he didn't have the voice for that song. And I, I wonder what Steve Perry would have done with it. Anyway, that is kind of the end. It's kind of the end of Van Hagar. And it's a shame that Van Hagar ends the way it does, or at least it ends the way it does with Humans Being from Twister. Because that band, they were around for almost for about 11 years before they finally just broke up. And... It's it sucks that the ending was not as good as the beginning, and that's the case for a lot of bands. But instead of uh, my going out on that note, because it's really kind of a depressing note to go out on, not depressing, but just kind of a blah note to go down on, I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, I'll try to wrap things up on a high note. Stick around. Do you enjoy movie scores? Do you like science fiction? Like fantasy. And do you like movies? Uh, uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. What happened? Uh, hit a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Well, I have a podcast for you. Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current times. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you, and check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. I haven't done 
uh, about six months, but and I didn't even rehearse it. So if I really, if I really blow it, just start yelling and screaming, acting like I'm just doing great, okay? The song I came back with is a bit of a cheat. It's not a Van Hagar song. It's a Sammy Hagar song. It appears on his 1987 album, I Never Said Goodbye. But this version is from the VHS version of the Live Right Here Right Now album. Um, They put out a double live CD that had a different Sammy Hagar solo song performance on it. And then I had the VHS of the concert, which I watched a couple of times. But this was one of my favorite bits from the entire tape. And uh, I really, really like it. I still really like it. It's called Eagles Fly. Uh, The studio version, which I listened to in researching this episode, and which I hadn't heard in years is really synth heavy and I didn't like it as much as this acoustic version. It's just so, so good. Anyway, I wanted to take a minute or two to wrap up this episode by actually giving some love to Van Hagar instead of like having to end on the rather down note that I had at the end of the last segment. Or at least I thought I could bring things out by reiterating how much I genuinely enjoy Van Hagar in a way that isn't ironic or isn't like I consider them a guilty pleasure. I don't listen to their music like all the time. Um, My tastes on a regular basis sometimes tend to include stuff that's a little lighter, a little more folkier, but sometimes like I, I just I have this hankering for just straight up straightforward rock in the vein of Sammy Hagar leading this band and I think there's no better way to do that than to do an episode like this just to shine a quick light on a band that you know like I said I don't think they get enough credit in the kind of annals of pop and rock culture history especially as we tend to take a look back with, you know, countdown lists and television shows that do countdown lists or YouTube countdown lists that would probably feel more comfortable crapping on a band like this rather than actually praising them because I think everybody who's at, you know, Watch Mojo or wherever really, really wants to sit at the cool kids' lunch table. And not all of us get to sit at the cool kids lunch table and some of us just sit at our own lunch table and listen to OU812 or songs off of For In Love For Carnal Knowledge and are like, you know what? I'm going to sit here and listen to OU812. You have fun listening to the Black Keys pretend they're Led Zeppelin. Anyway, I'm going to take us out and I think there's no better way to take us out than to play this song over the end credits which is a song that i also love from for unlawful carnal knowledge it is that album's closing track top of the world
If you like this episode, please uh, send me some feedback and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at popath. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. In a few weeks, I'll actually be back with part one of my two-part police story comic book reviews. The first one focusing on DC's Underworld miniseries. The second one will be focusing on the Marvel series Cops the Job. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Yeah. Oh,